Genre. to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character and a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're discussing Cursed Pirate Girl from the comic book series Cursed Pirate Girl by Jeremy Bastian. And joining me for the discussion is John Dorowski. Welcome back, John. Thank you. Returning guest, always glad to have you on uh, to dig into these kinds of topics. And Cursed Pirate Girl is a particularly fun one uh, to be discussing. Um, I'm guessing most of our listeners are not familiar with Cursed Pirate Girl. It is not broken out into the mainstream at all. <laughs> and there are reasons for that. <laughs> yes. Uh, for one, it is uh, a six-issue miniseries, of which four issues have been published. In ten years. In ten years. Uh, and we'll talk about why that would be regarding the level of detail of the art. This art is astounding. It's definitely the strength of it and what draws you in initially. But there's a fun story to go uh, with this amazing art as well. Do you remember when you first came across Chris Pirate Girl? I remember at the local comic book shop, they had the first issue on the shelves. And for weeks, I went back and forth on whether I should get it, take the chance on it, could I afford it. Ultimately, did not get it then, which I regretted after going to a conference and meeting Jeremy Bastian <laughs> and uh, seeing what he did. I was like, I really should have gotten that. And I got the trade collection. Uh, this was published by originally Olympia Press mm-hmm. uh, and then moved over to Archaea, mm-hmm. which also does Mouse Guard. Yeah. And... Uh... So you met him at the Michigan State University Comics Forum. Yes. Uh, which is um, a, an annual uh, smaller... I, they were very careful to call it a Comic-Con because it's a mix of uh, academic discussions about the comic book art. But then they also do have an artist alley where um, usually local uh, comic book creators from the Michigan area or um, they also do bring in uh, a keynote speaker who's a, a professional in the comic book industry uh, will we'll, uh, meet with anyone who wants to you know stop by and chat. And um, I was on some of the earliest organizing committees for that when I was in grad school. So I'm, I met Jeremy Bastian at the same place. Uh, I, we were never at the same MSU <laughs> comics forum. Uh, Cause it was after, Oh no, what year you, yeah, you were able to come on. That's where uh-huh. we met. Yeah. Um, and uh, it was a similar thing where I didn't know who he was. I just heard that, Oh, Jeremy Bastian's going to be in the, in the artist alley. And, um, and I like the name kind of rung a bell, so I must have heard about Chris Pirate Girl somewhere. But but it, like didn't connect with me. And the second I saw his art, I'm like, I need to buy that volume. I need you to sign it. I need some art from you, please. <laughs> because yes. and can you reduce the pressure in your original art so I can afford it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, he 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 does do sketches. Like mm-hmm. at least there he was doing sketches for free. Yeah. So I have a couple sketches from him, which look remarkably like. Uh, like the amount of detail he puts into it is astounding for how, how long, because like, he's not able to take the amount of time. Uh, you know, so it is limited to like I'm going to draw you a character, uh, but he like does, five five ten minutes. Yeah, but he does put so much detail, and you realize uh, when you see that that his art is a one to one ratio of what is actually published, which is not traditional for the comic book industry. Usually, artists are drawing at one point five to two times the size of what is actually published, so it gets it gets shrunk down, and so the the amount of details they can put in are greater. In the larger format, and he puts so much love and detail into every nook and cranny of everything that he draws that shows up in this comic. And when you realize it's drawn to scale, it's even more jaw dropping. Yeah, I was uh, looking at it today. I have the impression like this is really like a uh, 18th and 19th century etchings, like Rembrandt mm-hmm. used to do, and the, the fine line, but the amount of detail. And actually, reading, I read an interview with Bastian, and he talked about how. Uh, he uses a very thin brush to do his inking because it gives it the same line as etchings. <laughs> so that I was right on, on my impression. Yeah, we will uh, definitely post some links to his art uh, in in the show notes um, where you can go and see and appreciate it because it's something I don't think our dis- our descriptions are going to do justice to the visual you know the visual aspect of this work. Uh, I will say that um, you have discussed another work that used one to one art uh, with Rapunzel's Revenge. That was that artist. I apologize, I forget his name. But Hale. He, it, it was a a Hale, but not Shannon Hale. You yeah. know, it wasn't. It wasn't. Dale. Yeah. I, I forget. I apologize for yeah. forgetting which Hale. But he had never done graphic novel work before, and so he did. He didn't know. He he didn't do his research, and so he just drew it as one to one. 
And then he found out afterwards, oh, he did it this way. And mm-hmm. so his second work, the Calamity Jack, actually does look better mm-hmm. because he's able to put in more detail that got shrunk down that he couldn't do on the first volume. Yeah. Now, that is opposed to this one where this is all detail work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and it's super impressive. Um, so I guess as far as trivia goes, like we said, this was announced as a six-issue story, and um, four have been published, and there's a collection out there of the first three issues is what you yes. can get um, right now. And then there was also a fourth issue that was published as an annual. Doesn't doesn't work to be called an <laughs> annual <laughs> when there's only been one. So, so the first three-issue miniseries was published 2009-ish. The collection was published 2010. That's the firm date we have. Mm-hmm. The annual came out in 2015. Uh, and they had been announced it was going to be semi-regular. We haven't seen anything since. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I don't blame them. This takes a long time. Yeah. And it's worth the wait. Mm-hmm. And and even though the story is incomplete in these three issues, like I was completely satisfied when I got to the end. Like, I did want more. I You know, I do want to know what comes next. But it this is um, a read that's... That's worth it yeah. at three issues. Right he, ha- now. he has a, the complete story written out in, a, in his mind of what this is going to be, but you can tell that just reading this, you get a, a perfect chunk of it. Mm-hmm. And you get introduced to this wonderfully strange world. <laughs> um, one final bit of trivia. In the back of our collective volume from Olympia, they have an ad for the audio dramedy with several uh, famous comic creators actually contributing voices to the work. And I looked it up and I found some articles about the recording sessions, so they have something, but I could not find anything about it coming out. Uh, yeah, and just also um, on the back of this collection, you can see um, like some of the people who give blurbs are uh, David Peterson, who does Mouse Guard, who we had on the podcast, Gerard Way, uh, who did the Umbrella Academy, which is something we've mentioned a couple times, people who worked on Sandman, uh, people who worked on, um, uh, as it says, uh, the artist of the legendary newspaper uh, strip, Prince Valiant, Gary Gianni, on here. So, the, uh, there, oh, Mike Mignola, the creator of Hellboy. So, uh, within the comic book industry, there are lots of people who know and uh, have been taken with uh, um, Jeremy Bastian's work, even if it hasn't broken out. And and for well, comic book industry to break out so often, it needs an adaptation, right? That's what makes it well, into the more mainstream. One of the interesting things in the interview I read is he talked about going to some comic shows in France and actually being invited to comic shows in France. And uh, they love his work there. This is very much more in the uh, European style mm-hmm. of taking a long time to do a single issue. They, uh, and they don't have the monthly format in the Belgium, Franco-Belgian tradition. And so they, they love this work, uh, and actually celebrate him as an artist much more than they do here in the United States. Yeah. And like I said, for comic book artists or, or comic book works to become known so often, it is an adaptation into TV or a miniseries or film is what makes larger audiences become aware of it. And where this one isn't yet completed, you know, we're not going to see that. Um, if it ever does become, uh, an, an adapted work, I'd want it to be animation. <laughs> yeah. I go back and forth on what, what would work best for this because, you see a lot of, well, I'll wait until after the uh, summary to talk about its in, the influences on it because it'll make more sense. Then. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, before we get to the plot summary, uh, we want to thank you listeners for downloading this episode. And we want to thank those of you who support us through Patreon. If you'd like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we talk about the media that we've been consuming lately. And all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. So, uh, on to the plot summary of Cursed Pirate Girl. A young girl, Apollonia, is being guided through a seaside town by her father, the governor. And imagine, at this point, imagine a bit like uh, the kind of seaside town of Pirates of the Caribbean. You know, just um, right on the edge of lawlessness versus, uh, you know, the, the authority figure. You know, versus, trying... clo- versus colonial rule. Right, yeah. The, yeah, someone should, desperately trying to cling to authority <laughs> um, and, and assert authority over uh, the, the way people are living in the seaside town. Um, her, the governor, who is Apollonia's father, uh, warns her to watch out for degenerates like pirates. While her father takes care of some business, she looks down at the beach and she sees another girl who beats up two bullies. That girl sees Apollonia and 
claims to be a cursed pirate girl. She invites Apollonia to come meet her the next day at noon. We see the cur that the cursed pirate girl lives alone and has dreams about her father, whom she says is a pirate of the Omerta Seas. The governor is having a fancy feast for visiting Prince when Apollonia bursts in and she's pretending to be a pirate. And this embarrasses the governor greatly. However, the prince is a bit more pleased to see Apollonia's act and she likes he likes her spirit. But after Apollonia accidentally throws fruit on him, the prince uh, leaves the party. The governor is furious with his daughter. The governor sends one of his men to go find the cursed pirate girl who, has, who he sees as having been a bad influence on his daughter. And he wants her to be killed. Uh, this man knocks her out and puts her into a bag and he rows out to sea where he's going to throw her into the ocean. He apologizes to her unconscious form saying he needs proof and he plucks out her eye. Uh, then the man, who is named Sharky, sees a beach shark and hears his name the name Sharky, is coming out from the shark. Uh, he hits the shark uh, 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 body with a paddle, and its skin breaks, and he sees an arm uh, spill out of it, and he realizes that arm is his own arm. It has the same tattoo that he has. He freaks out, saying this is not possible. He falls into the water. When he surfaces, he looks where the shark was, and there's nothing there. And then a shark fin surfaces behind him, and that's how the cursed pirate girl got away. She also mentioned that cursed girl, pirate girl's parrot tells the, pirate, the Sharky you are now cursed that this is your punishment, <laughs> yeah. which is pretty creepy to adopt. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, so now Cursed Pirate Girl wakes up and she's alone uh, in the in this uh, small small boat and she has a conversation with that parrot uh, who tells her that she's now missing an eye. She rips off a rag from her dress and ties it over her missing eye. The parrot says he's going to take her to her father, but she needs to catch a large fish first. Uh, she uses some of the parrot's feathers to make a fly, like, like a fishing fly, and she does catch a large fish. The parrot climbs into that fish's mouth because the only way to the Emeritus Seas is through the Obscurum per Obscurus, which is at the bottom of the ocean. The cursed pirate girl says she can't breathe underwater, and the parrot from inside the fish asks, are you sure? And then they both dive into the ocean. Uh, the governor eats the cursed uh, pirate girl's eye. It's not clear where the, how he got his hands on the eye. I, 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 I kind of caught on that when it first happened, and then when I was writing the summer, I'm like, did we see like the eye fall into the ocean or, or like stay in the boat so that uh, you know someone goes and reclaims it or anything? So, uh, but he, he talks about the tradition of eating you know the heart of an enemy to take on their strength, and he eats the per cursed pirate girl's eye. And begins to transform. Yes, and and that's um, all we get of Apollonia at this moment, is really just seeing <laughs> her, her father. Uh, the cursed pirate girl reaches the obscurum per obscurus, and the skeletal gatekeeper asks if she has any fear. She yells nope and goes right through the portal. Uh, she is now in an undersea wonderland, and I think, I mean like Alice in Wonderland, Wonderland strangeness, or uh, you know, we'll talk about some of the influences for, for this world, but it is unlike anything <laughs> that exists in in our world um she sneak uh, uh sorry uh there she sees two fish knights fighting that's the best way i can describe it uh, armored figures at the bottom of the ocean who seem to have fish heads uh, uh, kind of maybe well their uh, chest plate just out like a swordfish yes and then they have their uh, regular knight's head on top, too. Uh -huh. uh, and they're fighting, and she realizes that they are really just arguing brothers. They're not really <laughs> having a fight. And she uh, convinces them uh, to, to make nice and shake hands. Uh, she and uh, those uh, fish knights and her, her parrot, who is inside of another fish, uh, go up to the surface, and they see a pirate ship. Now she knows there are five pirate ships that sail the Omerta seas, and one of them must be her father's. So she sneaks aboard and goes into the captain's quarters and says almost immediately, this doesn't feel like her father's ship. She, she doesn't know her father, but she knows this wouldn't be her father's ship. Uh, and uh, she steals a key and a map while she's in this room, but she is captured and for forced to go work for the ship's cook. The ship's cook likes her, but corrects her every time she insists that she's a girl because girls are bad luck on pirate ships. So every time she says that, she's, he just mutters, boy. <laughs> uh, serving a meal to the captain, she attacks the captain and, and is going to be thrown overboard, which is exactly what she wanted because she knows she can breathe underwater and she has fishy friends like Aquaman. She and her friends find another pirate ship. Uh, so after she's thrown overboard, she and her pirate, uh, friends go find another pirate ship, which is in a battle. Uh, she climbs aboard and gives advice that they aim for the mass of the other ship, which helps that ship to win. They, she then hears a drinking song being sung, and she goes and finds the very drunk singer, and he asks what she wants, and she says she thinks that song is about her. The end. I should say that in the song, the pirate father dies, giving away his daughter, and so she ends up crying. It's like, 
that song might reveal me. My father might be dead. Mm-hmm. And she has her le- learned that one of the pirate ships has been sunk because she says there's five, and they say, well, no, there's only four now. Yeah. Um. So yeah, there, there are definitely little bits of potential, you know, mythology being, being uh, introduced here. And Michelle's mentioned that in the collective volume, there is an epilogue about Apollonia that seems to indicate that she's going to turn against cursed pirate girl and view mm-hmm. her as an enemy. Yes. Yeah. One thing in this, um, I understand why the shift happens, but I, I did find myself wondering, like, what's happening to Apollonia a lot? Uh, you know, every time I remembered that that was another character, because she, she was what seemed to be the eyes into this strange world. You know, yeah. like, she's the one that introduces us to the Cursed Pirate Girl, but then it becomes, nope, this is just Cursed Pirate Girl's adventure. Um, you know, at least for what we have in these three issues. Mm-hmm. Um, you said you wanted to talk a little bit about potential influences that we see in Jeremy Bastion's work, whether he's referencing them or just things that it, yeah. it evokes for us as we look and, at it. Uh, part of why I bring that up is also, you want to see this animated. I'm like, well, a lot of the influences have had successful live action films. Mm-hmm. So maybe there's a way to negotiate this. Maybe not. I, uh, well, when they talk about influences, it definitely, um, there's elements of it that feel a lot like the Jim Henson labyrinth world, not the Jim Henson was, Muppet world, but was, labyrinth. That is yeah. definitely one. So he, Jeremy Bastion talked a lot about the, uh, classic children's literature that, that influenced this. So you have uh, Dickens, Robert Lewis, Stevenson's Treasure Island, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, Lewis Carroll and Alice in yeah, Wonderland. Alice in Wonderland, Wizard um, of Oz. Wizard of Oz, yeah. Uh, uh, Peter, some, Peter Pan, yeah. also. There's some bits of Twain yeah. thrown in. But when the two fish knights sword fighting came up, I'm like, forget all that. This is Terry Gillum and Jim Henson. Uh-huh. Uh, and they work together on Labyrinth. Mm, okay. So, so like, you, like, I saw that, like, no, that is Jim Henson and Terry Gilliam right there. That is the, the Labyrinth influence. So I see not only, like, he re- might recognize the uh, classic works. I see a lot of DNA of uh, 80s children's film with, where they were allowed to be dark and dangerous. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily grim fairy tale dark, but more in that direction than what we get now for children's entertainment. Well, it's interesting you said Terry Gilliam, because as soon as you said, you get the fish knights fighting, and I thought about the dialogue, and I thought, oh, this is somewhat of a Monty Python sketch, yeah. actually. <laughs> uh, the, the dialogue, not the, the visual, per se. Uh, yeah. No, in, in the, the visual's movie. Henson, yeah. dialogue is uh, Monty Python-esque. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, so I think you also see elements of things like Goonies, Neverending Story, uh, Labyrinth, and Dark Crystal. Uh, and, uh, what's the little creature's gizmo? Uh, Gremlins. Gremlins. Yeah, yeah, like so. You see, this early '80s entertainment influence in, is in the DNA, not as obviously mm-hmm. as some of the, of the classic literature references. Cool. But I think, I think, like he seems like a children. Like he's around our age, so children of the uh, child of the '80s. Yeah, that's just part of your DNA. Yeah, uh, definitely. And um, even like you mentioned the. Uh, um, you know, the, the classic influences, it did also make me think a little bit um, in terms of, like, the character design and the world of Hieronymus Bosch's uh, Garden of Earthly Delights. Um, you know, just there's the strange, like, whatever is going on here, yeah. it's going on here. <laughs> well, not only that, but you have a lot of influence of the 19th century caricature artists mm-hmm. where a lot of exaggerated figure, features and figures. So the uh, character design, Chris Pryor Girl and Apollonia look normal. But a lot of the other characters have large heads or something else is distended in some way mm-hmm. to, or exaggerated in some way. And as it goes on, it gets even more and more fanciful. So the last ship she ends up on is crewed by animals. Uh, yeah. Well, and even the, 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 the first ship she's on has some crew that are animals, not yeah, all so, of them. Or the potato with mustache. Um, and, and there's like a, the pirate captain has a giant head. It definitely, for me, evokes Miyazaki uh, the, from Spirited Away. Or, um, uh, what's the, the character with the giant head in Spirited Away? The Oh, no, no. Is it Yubaba. Um, Yubaba. Well, that's the design he uses constantly. Yes, I was going to say, because it's also in Howl's Moving Castle, there's someone yeah. with a giant. Yeah, yeah that's a... That's a Big nose, big head design is one he goes back to a lot, but uh, also like um, Humpty Dumpty from the, like if you think about the illustrations that you have had in 19th century and early 20th century uh, for fairy tales and nursery rhymes, these big figures with uh, disproportionate bodies because they want want to exaggerate them to emphasize something from the rhyme. Uh, Clearly... I think is you see a lot of that in here too, uh, or even like uh you know Humpty Dumpty or not you know but Tweedledee Tweedledum oh, yeah. That, yeah from from uh the Alice in Wonderland and like just looking through like there's so many things that are just 
charming little details that get thrown in and you, you pause and look at it and, and like want to think about those influences. And I think this plays to one of the strengths is comic books as a medium of storytelling where pausing to look at the art is not a disruption of the narrative. Like it's an invitation from the the storyteller. Whereas like when films like pause to show you a really cool, cool shot. Sometimes it feels indulgent because they're pausing the narrative in a way that feels uh, transgressive to the flow yeah. uh, to, to highlight like, this is really stunning, guys. And, and you can appreciate like the aesthetics of what's going on, but sometimes it feels like it's, it's slowing the flow of the narrative. Comic books, they want you to to stop, and it is not a bug of the... Uh, it's a feature of, of the medium uh, that, that you can consume the artistic elements at your own pace and take as much time as you want, and you don't feel like you're disrupting the narrative. And you need to take your time on this one. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's so much detail back in these pages. Uh, speaking of like, the nursery rhyme influence, there is... When she gets to Amanda C, there's just a, in the corner of a panel, there's a dinner plate and a fork and spoon swimming with little <laughs> fish tails on them. And like that's just in the little corner. It has nothing to do with the narrative, but it, it gives you the mise-en-scene of this world. And you know, okay, this is the kind of world we're in now. Yeah, and um, like in talking about those influences, like I love the moment where it's like, well, you're going to have to go th- travel through the, uh, obs- wait, I don't know, let me get the, 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 which one goes first, the Obscurum per Obscurus, um, you know, at the bottom of the ocean. And it absolutely feels like, you know, going, uh, you know, down the rabbit hole, you know, and, and you know, any of these classic like transitions into another space um, or, or, and then when you get to the guardians, it feels like Greek mythology of the, you know, crossing to the underworld. Like mm-hmm. who is the guardian, you know, the gatekeeper that's going to stop you from doing these things. Um, so you feel all those classical influences in something that also feels wholly unique. Like, like it feels yeah. special. It feels of itself. Uh, like this is its own world. Even as in trying to describe it, we want to grab onto uh, what feel like influences. It, it definitely feels of you know of, of of its own kind. And part of what makes it feel unique is there aren't a lot of pirate comic books. <laughs> uh, so this is one of a very small number. Um, but also the character of Cursed Pirate Girl helps it stand out. Yeah, so let's let's talk a little bit about her. Um, what do we get for Cursed Pirate Girl if we're trying to do a character sketch? Well, what impressed me was I thought like this opening reminds me of Indiana Jones, not in well a little bit of the tone, but more in how is Indiana Jones introduced in the film? You have this whole you have a whole sequence of traveling through the jungle and invaders. And then you see they start at his feet and work the way up, and so you see the whip and the hat, and you don't you don't see his face for a few minutes. And then he doesn't even talk for a long time after that. But just that image, you immediately know what this kind of character is. I mean, I have the same impression here where uh, we are following Apollonia, and then she sees out on the beach these two boys. You hear these two boys, and then we get to the image of Cursed Pirate Girl, and it's just a stru- striking full page image. She had was this tall hat. Big belt. She's holding a wooden sword that she made. Uh, you have a long stick at, uh, as a sword and a small stick as the crossbeam tied together with rope, but the rope's hanging in such a way that it looks like a cutlass handle. <laughs> and it's so perfect. You're like, okay, I, I get a lot about this character just from this image. Well, and even, like you mentioned the hat, it looks like a witch's hat. Yeah. And, and like the way her. So, yeah, it's like the. Evoking the imagery of witch and pirates to get that cursed pirate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, the idea of cursed right magic. Yeah. yeah, right away you just immediately say, "Okay, yeah, this this character is cursed pirate girl." Yeah, I, I like that a lot. Uh, your description it, it definitely is like you turn the page and you see that and you're like, "Oh, okay." Uh, well, and there's, um, I'm not at all trying to say his art isn't detailed before because it is so detailed in so many of the things on the pages before. But the page that immediately precedes the reveal of Chris Power Girl. I think it must be a deliberate choice. There's much sparser backgrounds. There's a lot more white space on those pages. And then you turn and see, um, like the, oh, what's the word for this? The kind of, it's not quite cross hatching, but I'm not sure what the right language is for the, the shade, you know, the exact uh, jargon, uh, artistic jargon, uh, for the, for the shading, but it's so much more detailed on this page. And mm-hmm. you, you know, that's deliberate. Like it, it is a sparser, wider page, to prepare you for all the detail that's coming, because this is the hero shot. This yeah. is the introduction of our protagonist. It's going to be, uh, you know, the, the money shot that is uh, meant to, uh, you know, make you know that this is a character. Because, like, when you're following Apollonia and her father, you know Apollonia is not the main character. And it's not just because this is called Cursed Pirate Girl. <laughs> it's because this is clearly not 
our main protagonist. This yeah. is going to be a side character whose eyes are going to be opened in some way. Or I mean, this is our sense of normal that introduces us into the wider world mm -hmm. in this work. And we should also mention that I think that uh, Jeremy Bastian's artwork and writing gets stronger throughout these three issues. It's not like this, oh, he suddenly has these leaps and bounds of style, but it's just like by the by the third issue, he's like, okay, the line works a little stronger. He has a little more command of the voices of the characters, or is willing to let the characters have these voices. Mm -hmm. And it's, uh, so you actually reading this, you see a person progress in their creativity. Yeah, and, and the way, uh, the world gets shown to us, like the, the different uh, panel layouts that happen. Like, I think he gets a little more inventive uh, as, as it goes along. And one thing I will, I, I want to acknowledge as um, someone who's read a lot of comics, this one has different panel layouts. It is not at all like the traditional nine panel grid. I never once felt lost as to what panel was going to be next. Once or twice. And when they were stacking panels on mm -hmm. left hand, I was, I was like, all right, I go right. No, I needed to read the stack first mm -hmm. and then go over but I, like just flipping through, like there's some pages that that will have um, very like asymmetrical panel layouts, which can often be super uh, disruptive from the story for for a reader. Um, and I think it, one thing that works is often when they have those, like you're meant to take in the whole page as a piece of art first, mm -hmm. uh, and, and then like the, the panels are insets, uh, you know, inside yeah. of uh, inside of a larger image, and so you you're not trying to read it as a traditional uh, piece of art, which. Um, I, again, I never felt like this was a flaw at all. Um, it, it was something that felt pretty natural to work through as a reader. And knowing that this is, I mean, at the moment, his first and only comic book, um, from what I was able to find, I was impressed. He, no, he did uh, some work on something else before this okay. that wasn't, just didn't work out. Mm -hmm. And then he dove into this. Uh, but but there's a a real confidence in, in yeah. using the art form, uh, you know, and... Um, you know, mastering it to, to tell this story. And part of it was seeing a style he liked, but then making it his own and mastering that and saying, this is me and no one else is drawing like this. So it is a distinctive stamp. So yes, enough about the art. Let's get back to the uh, character. Uh, <laughs> what, so yeah, what makes Curse Pyre Girl an uh, interesting character? One thing is she's very self-possessed. She knows who she is. And so this isn't a journey of discovery about finding out who I really am or like, because often when you say, like, oh, I don't know who my family is, and if I go on this journey, I'll find out who they are. And, uh, and then really it's about the, the journey. It turns out, like, no, the journey was finding out who you are. From meeting your family, that's, uh, they, whether you like them or not isn't the point. Mm -hmm. uh, but here, you know, this is a journey to find your father because she already knows who she is. Yeah, um, there's um, a self-assuredness that... Oh, yeah. And I think that he's able to use that same character trait at times to be shown as like brash overconfidence and other times to be like just self-awareness. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I think it's um, a skillful writer who can have the same trait be a pro and a con, uh, depending on the setting and the situation. Yeah. Um, I, I think often there's the, 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 uh, the pool for a writer is like, once I've established this one character trait, it's always a good one. And now they're, I'm going to introduce a different character trait that's negative, but it's more interesting when it can be the same trait is, is a positive and a negative. Yeah. Um, but it also means that when she goes into a scene, when there's uh, confronting someone, whether it be the fish knights or, uh, or the bullies at the very beginning or, or a pirate captain, uh, she goes in with the same confidence mm -hmm. that she's going to, you know, she could take charge and resolve this. Uh, or figure out her way out of it that there's never any doubt that she's really in danger mm -hmm. because she's just so, so confident about everything. And it's not that she avoids danger. I mean, she's lost yeah. an eye by the end of the first yeah. issue. Uh, and she's, you know, in the third, she's captured by a pirate and uh, forced to work for him. And But she's like, no, I'll find a way out of this. Yeah. And, well, like, she loses eye and she doesn't uh, complain about it. She's like, okay, let me just put this bandage over it and what's next? Yeah. And, and so she ties the rag over, which is a great look. And then which is in the, uh, the first pirate captain's lair, she steals an eye patch yeah. uh, and, and changes her, her look again, which is, you know, both looks work. Very well, well. And it's that, uh, evolution of the design reflecting an evolution of character mm -hmm. that, yeah, we were saying like, she's from the beginning, she's had this particular characteristic. That's not to say she doesn't change. She doesn't grow. As she encounters these other characters, she learns about making friends, and uh, she knows, like, she can tell who she can trust and who she can't, so the first pirate ship, she definitely can't trust the captain, she 
trust the cook, and the cook's a great guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, so part of it is balancing off, bouncing off other characters allows you to see the other aspects of her. Yeah, and I think um, the co- the cook is an interesting one because it, she is legitimately surprised with how much he helps her. Mm-hmm. Like, she was not expecting that. I think that's one of the lessons she needs to learn is, you know, the, this trust of others. And it's not saying trust everyone, because clearly there are many people she uh, should not be trusting. And actually, that's the case where she didn't go in with the same brashness mm-hmm. that she had. She's still self-possessed, but she's bringing out, no, I, I can do a different approach with this cook to and become friends with him if I... Uh, try and be a little clever and funny mm. instead. Yeah, so she does a, a bit. And when you're reading it, it is an interesting aspect of um, comics where, you, like, there's no tone. It's just mm-hmm. text on a page. And so tone, yes, lettering can sometimes denote tone, and size of word balloon can denote tone, but but those are often, you know, tricks that are trying to do it. But it, somehow he did convey this conversation of her and the cook where she is trying to play a trick on him, and he knows that she's playing a trick on him, but he's kind of tickled yeah. uh, that, that she's doing like, it. He likes it. Yeah, and so and it's because she she walks in, and she sees all the gross food, um, and she knows she's being punished, and she sees one delicious meal that is really going to be the captain's meal, and she's like, oh, that's the worst of all of this. I can't believe you'd serve that like, to give, anyone. Give me the fish guts. And, yes, I, so. I'd rather eat all that gruel over there. And, and um, he plays it straight for a little bit, and somehow I knew he was in on this and playing it straight with her. And I don't know how Jeremy Bastian would pull that off. You know, what aspect of the art and text was able to come together to deliver the verbal, you know, mm-hmm. intonation that you'd get out of a performance that lets you know everyone's in on that kind of a, a you know, on the joke in that kind of a conversation. Yeah. Now, it doesn't say that he doesn't play around with form. Sometimes he has uh, word, word balloons, but they'll be connected by this long chain of uh, sound effect. Mm-hmm. Uh, or with the... Uh, Fish knights, the swordfish knights, uh, they have very distinctive shapes on their wood balloons. And so not only is their tone this kind of knightly uh, medieval style, but the that's reinforced by the shape of the wood balloon. Yes. Um, and then I, I was um, trying to think back to um, a couple of other moments where... Um, yeah, the, you you get um, definitely different size texts will happen, um, but then even different shapes of word balloon that can um, give you different feelings. So when she um, when she passes the gatekeepers and uh, is going to be entering the the Omerta seas um, as she's going through the portal, her word balloon looks like um, a tattered uh, a, a, a tattered um, a flag, you know, kind yeah. of you know because she's being pulled through to a different, and you feel like the words stretching and, and like you visually you can kind of hear the, you know, the echo fading uh, as the, the line of dialogue is, thank you, sir. Farewell. Um, but it's through this long word balloon that ends in tattered edges, um, you know, like a, like a frayed flag. Or the song at the end is this long banner and it weaves around the page and the words actually flow with it. So you have to turn the page around to, follow, to actually read the words. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, and Actually, that's an interesting effect there because those words are really important. That's a, I mean, this is the midpoint of the story, uh, where kind of getting at the low point for the character and being forced to focus on the words that way instead of the images is effective on reinforcing that. Yeah, and, and we know, um, just I mean, from the cycle of story, you know, we're familiar enough with these kind of beats that you know, this is a revelation, so you can't choose not to read it yeah. <laughs> like you 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 have to do the twisting of, of the book uh to, to be able to take it all in um or, or you you know you're gonna be missing out on that um any other character aspects for the curse pirate girl besides her visual appearance or her her self-assured brashness uh you know that that make her stand out not immediately coming to mind um for me like the the defining moment of that is this uh, encountering the gatekeeper uh, mm-hmm. and you know the rite of passage is like do you have any fear and you know that's a challenge and she just yells nope <laughs> <laughs> and runs right past there's no battle there's no fight there's no riddle to be solved mm-hmm. um, and, and I think that kind of defines it and uh, like around those moments um, you get some really strong artwork of her like riding on the fish as though it, it was a wild horse you know these kinds of things um, which are um, her entering the unknown but doing it at the same time with a sense of control, I think, uh, you know, that, that, okay, this fish is her parrot guide that's inside of a fish, but she's riding on top of it. It looks like she's guiding it, uh, which always yields to her a sense of authority and not that she's being 
pulled along. Well, also, this is a nice modern contrast to some of the classic tales we talked about before, where you have your Alice in Wonderland or Wizard of Oz, where the girl arrives in a new world and is very scared and nervous mm-hmm. about everything. Not here, where she's she leaps in, and then when she gets to the new world, it's not about all the wonder. I mean, it's like, I am, like, I need to find my dad, and it doesn't matter what I have to go through to get there. Um, part of what makes it, her a strong character, though, is the contrast with other characters. If you look at the uh, Apollonia in the beginning, that contrast between Apollonia and Cursed Pirate Girl strengthens both of them, or at least their characterization. Or, yeah, reveals for the audience. Yeah. So Apollonia is um, kind of subservient to her dad. There's a scene where she gets in the carriage after this first meeting, and her side is filled with dolls, and when she's sitting there, you can't tell them apart who's the doll and who she is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you can feel like, you see, in a sense, like she, Apollonia, doesn't have control over her life. She doesn't have power. And seeing Cursed Pirate Girl, it's like, oh, that's exciting. I want I want to be like that. And that's why she does the uh, pretend to be a pirate during the dinner. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think in some ways we expect... Uh, and maybe it's because of our familiarity with other stories. We expect her to then run away and yeah. join Cursed Pirate Girl on this adventure, and this is going to be Apollonia's coming of age in some ways. Yeah, and it seemed to be set up that Cursed Pirate Girl invited her to come yeah. uh, on the voyage, and kind of, you know, partway through, you kind of expect that to happen, and it doesn't, and you kind of forget about Apollonia <laughs> for a long while. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, and um, like if that were what happened, this wouldn't be Cursed Pirate Girl's story. It would be Apollonia's story, exactly. and Cursed Pirate Girl would be the mysterious mentor figure. Exactly. You know, that is um, going to, to show her the ropes and help her break out from under her father's semi-tyrannical, patriarchal, you know, expectations for for what a, a little girl is supposed to be um, in this world. And, and so to not have it was a really interesting moment, I think, to, to not send Apollonia on this adventure, and it definitely centers Cursed Pirate Girl. Yeah. So, yeah, like the first issue, it, it seems kind of a bit... Uh, a large portion of Apollonia's story, but then the second issue, it's really, you've realized, no, this is just Cursed Pirate Girl's story throughout. Now, in saying, like, she's assertive and in control, like, she does have this parrot mentor that says, I'm going to take you to meet your father, right? Well, he's not really a mentor, right? but he does instruct her about some of the rules of this new world. And that's what I want to say, is, like, what is the relationship that we have there? Because it's not the traditional, like, uh, Gandalf and Frodo, you know, or anything like that at all. Nothing here. Um, Like, you, you, you get the sense that, um, the parrot knows some things, but isn't like the wizened old sage uh, kind of mentor at all. Yeah, but he is the voice of caution. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's um, cursed pirate girl can in her brashness can uh, not worry about the danger of a situation. In fact, when uh, the second pirate ship when they're in the midst of the battle, she's climbing the ship and a cannonball <laughs> explodes right next to her, and you hear the people that were like, "Oh no, she's dead!" And like, "No, I'm fine, I'm fine," but the <laughs> But she doesn't have that uh, concern about her own safety, and she has to be reminded, and he can be that voice of caution. Well, even I, I think there's an interesting moment. After she breaks up this swordfish knights, let's call them that, I think that works yeah. well. Uh, she breaks up their fight, like another giant sea monster fight kind of breaks out around her, and there's a moment where you're like, what's she going to do? And she she's like, that one's not mine. Yes. <laughs> That's not my battle. But I think it's because she's everyone around her is saying, mm, this this one's yeah. bigger. You you, yeah. you can't. Even though they, they had initially warned her not to go engage with this one, she's like, I'm going to go stop these two idiots that are fighting. Uh, and, and she does. She straightens them out. But then she she does have that sense, I think, I don't know if it, why is that sequence in there, I guess, do you think, of her kind of leaving this other sea monster fight that, that erupts around her well, alone? Uh, like you said, so partly is realizing what battles you can't handle. The other sea battle is between a giant squid and a dog monster with hybrid a, with thing. a maternal instinct. Yeah, this, <laughs> this weird monster fish dog thing. Um, and part of it is like that's too weird. <laughs> like that hybrid thing was too weird, and let's not deal with that one. Uh, but it's also like you said, realizing what she can handle. Like I can. You know, I'm fine diving between two knights fighting. Squid and this monster dog, fish. With a, with a scale that's so far beyond her. Yeah. yeah. Like, I can't. Because she, when she goes... Yeah, like, she's... She, but she's at first ready to jump in. Mm-hmm. But then, so, uh, it's actually the parrot inside the fish. <laughs> Talking about this gets really weird sometimes. <laughs> uh, it says, no, uh, the, uh, that's not a battle you can handle. Mm-hmm. Um, and be, well, it was also because she was going to fight to protect this 
dogfish that was going to be like she she had befriended. But the parrot says, uh, "The thing about this dogfish is the mothers are never far away." And that's when the monster <laughs> dog thing comes in, and that's the mother. Uh-huh. And so it says, "Oh well, if the mother's there, then I don't also don't." It's not, it's not my fault. It's not my responsibility anymore. Yeah. Before I like. I was going to jump in because I thought I needed to defend this uh, dogfish, but I don't. Because mm-hmm. um, she does physically manhandle the sword knight fish to stop fighting. Like she grabs them by their their beak slash swords and you know twists them around. Yeah. Um. So like she has a, a physicality that she could employ in that earlier battle. That seeing the scale of the squid just isn't going to work. Mm-hmm. Um. And but in talking about her um her attributes, uh, clearly in the second pirate ship, we're meant to be see to well, in, in both of them, we're meant to see her cleverness. That it's not yeah. just I'm confident and I'm I'm physically going to manhandle some bullies and well, stop some people yeah, from fighting. A- I'm going to solve a puzzle that the sea captain hasn't solved in his own quarters somehow, um, and that's how she gets the the uh, key and the and the map is um, by solving a riddle in there. So you see some intelligence uh, or wit um, in, in that moment, and then in the second battle, uh, it seems like these ships have just been pounding each other and like the cannonballs aren't breaking through, and she's like, "Well, shoot for their masts," mm-hmm. and and no one else had thought of that, and it's going to save the day, you know, for this yeah. one pirate. It, when you think back on Crispire Girl, I think we've done a good job bringing another character, but um, and we've talked a lot about like the aesthetics and the storytelling techniques, so some of the more formless elements. But what makes this stand out to you and says and say this is actually a great story that's happening right here? Well, it's because of the elements you just talked about, uh-huh. uh, it is a strong visual style that is distinctive. It is a strong character who. Um, Really, it embraces the, the fairy tale idea that magic just exists in the world. You don't have to explain it. So she goes to the portal. She doesn't care. Like The world doesn't need an explanation. Or even the, the I can't breathe underwater. Are you sure? Oh, I can't. Yeah. Okay. You just go for it. <laughs> yeah. And, like, we don't need an explanation for it. Uh, that so often you like writers would want to give a reason. And I'm sure there is a reason that will be revealed by the end of the story. But uh, the confidence to say, no, you don't need to know right now. You don't need to know a reason that she can breathe underwater right now. You just need to know that she can. Well, and like we mentioned, all the things that are influences, like the rules of of Wonderland are never explained. It just is, or the world, yeah. you know, the rules of Neverland. That's not, you know, we're never going to figure out <laughs> why, uh, you know, you fly through outer space and and go to this place, you know, that has the Lost Boys and all this other stuff that's going on, and why there, uh, you know, the the Indians and the the. Um, you know the pirates, and you know everything's just all mishmashed together. Why? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> it was, it was it, interesting to the storyteller. Yeah, that's just the world. <laughs> um, and I think sometimes the um, I, I feel like we shifted too much to towards explanations. Like yeah. everything has to have a rule set that is always going to be followed, and that's what good fantasy is going to be. And this is a, a little bit of that callback to it's just going to be well, wild creativity. It's um, Brandon Sanderson, uh, at least for. 21st century, he's really kind of, if you have magic, there have to be rules, there has to be a price to use magic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you have to, like, I remember in listening to um, his, oh, what is his writer's podcast called? Um, he, has a, he has a semi-regular podcast. I've, I've read those, his books on writing. Now. Yeah. I haven't done okay. a podcast. But even, like, I just remember him offhandedly like, saying, if you have, um, you know, magical means of transportation, you need to know what that does to your, the economics of trade. You yeah. know, at all. Like, yeah, like, so like, like <laughs> that's how he views it and thinks about the world. And I, I think that's a valid, I'm not saying that's yeah. an invalid no, way. It's, of, a, it's of, a valid so. argument. And it's been highly influential on a lot of writers uh, for the last 10, 15 years. But, there's also a joy in not having it and just saying, no, you just, that just happens. Yeah. There, there's uh, definitely like a free sense there's of whimsy a, in this, uh, in yeah. Curse Pirate Girl, that is charming. Like, it's just a charming... Whimsy and the childlike wonder. Of yeah. Uh-huh. I'm turning the page and seeing what, um, you know, what is going to be next. So, like, one of the sketches that Jeremy Bastion did for me, I, he, well, he's, he, this is when I first met him. He's like, what do you want me to draw? I'm like, well, I haven't read it yet, so you could just draw, you know, anything you like, any... It was a, a fish with it looks kind of like chicken legs, but in a knight's helmet. He's like, this is one of my favorite little characters. Mm-hmm. And and when I read Chris Pirate Girl, I'm like, that character's like in the background of like two scenes <laughs> on the pirate ship. It's not like I thought it'd be a side character or a sidekick or you know something like that. But no, it, it was just I got tickled like him as an artist was yeah. tickled with this one creation. But he, he didn't feel the need to like center it or anything. It's just there in the background, and and that makes you realize like when you look at the pirate ships and there's all these crew, like he probably likes every one of these characters because <laughs> yeah, right. he he could just do anything. Yeah, and I, you see that more and more as it goes on. But the third issue is like, like the pirate crews are it's so fantastical, whereas 
the beginning, like it is the normal world, we move into the fantastic world, but there's still a sense of normalcy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, like, halfway through the second issue, he starts first, like, where she goes, like, is that a potato with a mustache? She's like, yeah, you don't want to bother him. <laughs> and it's kind of like that part, it's like, oh, yeah, like, we could just go with mm-hmm. it. Yeah, everything is definitely exaggerated in that seafront town, and like you said, so, like, the, the governor has the larger than humanly possible head on, on a very yeah. thin body, um, and, and while Apollonia and Curse Pirate Girl themselves have more uh, traditional, uh, like, cartoonified, uh, mm-hmm. you know, figures. It still uh, doesn't feel fantastical. But once they cross into the Omera Seas, it's like, all bets are off. Uh, and any character design that has crossed his head may, may you know, may, may be showing up here. But um, with a level of care that it it feels like this character works. You know, mm-hmm. like, like, there's there's um, anatomy. Like, like, he knows the anatomy of of these characters that are going to be in three panels in the background. And in that sense, it's similar to actually another pirate comic book, the most popular one, One Piece, mm-hmm. where that creator does whatever character design he wants, but he makes it work. He has a logic behind it and a lot, you know, an explanation for why they're like that. But you can, he goes wild on his designs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and so I guess what I think, when I, when I am thinking about like Chris Pirate Girl, what makes this better? It's definitely the, the formalist aspect of the art. Like, like mm-hmm. that art is what is jaw dropping sometimes when you turn the page and you're like, how did he do this? <laughs> like, like how is this, this being uh, penciled and then inked uh, with, with this level of detail and shading? And it's, um, we should say it's black and white. Uh, it's um, all the, the texture and depth and everything is just black line strokes, yeah. you know, on, on the page. Uh, and it's, it's pretty astounding um, work. And I love the story. It's being told with that. And I think it's an excellent match of story and yeah. form, but, but what makes this so special to me is Jeremy Bastian's, uh, you know, yeah. art style. It's absolutely the art that makes it special. But as you said, like the story works. And part of that is you have this strong focus. Curse part girl is a strong character. We can focus on her. No matter what the scene is, uh, we can follow her through it. It's not that, <laughs> we ever lose that focus, which is would also be very possible with this type of story where you have all this stuff going on and you could get lost in it. And I'll be honest with One Piece, sometimes that creator gets lost in this world where he's <laughs> like, I don't have all this fantastic stuff and the pirate crew doesn't appear for a little bit. Well, and in some ways I wonder if it's um, a strength of not having all the strict rules of the world have to be laid out for the reader to not get lost in it so much. Cause sometimes the info dumps of fantasy writers mm. trying to explain their magic systems. Oh yeah, it, it can be a little tedious uh, to go yeah. through, even if it's like okay, I, like I understand the law, like I, by the end I understand the logic, and they're very consistent in applying those rules and everything. And so you do need to know them. Um, that 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 I think that's where the narrative can get lost sometimes. Uh, like, how am I going to present this? And so for this world to just be like, no, every time you jump on a pirate ship, you don't know what the crew is going to look like or what it's going to be, and we're not going to explain to you why uh, any of the crew members look the way they do. They just they just yeah. are there. Um, I, I think it may help to keep it centered on Pirate Girl and not on the world yeah. itself. Well, in the sense of drawing on another tradition, in this case, in the comic book side of Winsor McKay and. Uh, oh, that's yeah. another influence I meant to mention. Yes. Thank you for pulling I'm that one. Just pulling it off myself, <laughs> remembering to bring it up. Uh, is it Little Nemo's Adventures in Slumberland? I think that was the, or the Little title. Little Nemo in Slumberland. Yeah. Um, gorgeous, uh, the same thing of gorgeous illustrations. This was a landmark comic strip of the 20s, maybe into the 30s. Um, but this is a, that was the golden age of these very, also of other times, very lush illustration on the comic strip page that really don't get to say yeah uh well for a host of reasons yeah uh oh there's huge reasons uh, economically and production sidewise like yeah. just the way things are done you're never going to have uh produced regularly for newspaper uh <laughs> what what Windsor McKay was doing uh with Little Nemo um but yeah it was a similar, a similar thing where like this like all the logic you need to know is this is a dreamscape and yeah, now so it can be anything it's the dream logic with the combined with that lush illustration and yes this is Bastion is the inheritor of that more so perhaps than any other artist that I've really seen mm-hmm. not to say there aren't some that are close but Bastion well, and again, captures it's, it's, that wonder it, and whimsy and it's it's what we've seen. Like there's there's so much that's out there. Who knows what we haven't yeah. come across? And, and even with comic books, like I said, I, I would 
that a lot of people who consider themselves comic readers don't know Chris Fire Girl because it's not yet complete. There's no omnibus that tells, that tells the whole story, so stories are it's, less likely to, so to stock it. Yeah, uh, you know, so, um, and I mean, Jeremy Bastian, my understanding is that he started this like independent self publishing this and then found uh, Olympi, uh, Olympian uh, did, um, press to, or publishing to. Which to is, to, it's not, not a big not, press. Not, not a big press. Not even a small press. Yeah. I've never heard of anything else from Olympia. Uh, well, and then it was picked up by Archaea, which yeah. is still not a big press at all. It's no yeah. Marvel DC Dark Horse image. You know, those no, are, it is, those are big... it has moved into one of the bigger... Small so, presses. Of the, sec- the, of the second tier publishers yeah. because of its partnership, Boom Studios. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a game. Which, which, I mean, Boom Studios is still, in and of itself, not one of the big presses. No, uh, you it know. is one of the secondary presses. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of reason why... Um, the average person hasn't heard of this. Uh, and so when we say like, this is, you know, for us kind of like a singular thing, maybe there's someone out there who's doing, you know, art that is as fascinating that we just haven't encountered. And that's one thing. There's just so much great content that's being put out uh, through well, film, television, that, and comics that not, we can't consume at all. There's no way. Not, it's not, even that, it's not that, that there's so much great content. There's just so much content, period. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and Good and bad. To bring out there, and that's how we end up, you know, three hundred issues uh, or episodes into a podcast where I, I fairly early on in uh, brainstorming uh, topics for Todd and I to cover on the protagonist podcast, I had Curse Pirate Girl down. We just never got to it uh, because there's so much to talk about. But I'm glad that we have circled back uh, and and done an episode on Curse Pirate Girl. Do you have any final thoughts to sum up? Just that this is worth seeking out. Um, there, it's still available. Uh, you you can find it, so uh, yeah, it's it's worth the money to, uh, or at the very least, seeking out your green bastard art so you can mm-hmm. see it and understand why we're so impressed by it. Yeah, and I like I said, I'll have a link in the show notes on this episode, and also like on the Facebook post where where I put this, I will um, uh, put some links to Jeremy Bastian's uh, art and some examples. Uh, but you know, if you're just listening to this in the car, just try and mentally think to yourself, okay, I need to go look up Jeremy <laughs> Bastian uh, and just Google his his art style, um, and it is uh, that is. B-A-S-T-I-A-N. Yes. Uh, it's worth uh, just discovering an artist whose work, I think, uh, it is rewarding just to look at for the aesthetics of art, not just his storytelling, but just the aesthetics of looking at his, uh, anything that he sketched, you're going to say, that's an artist who's doing something pretty special. Yeah. And we like we don't know how long this is going to take to finish the story, but the fact that the, you have a person who's spent so much time doing one thing and getting it as best as he can. That's something special. Mm -hmm. All right, that is going to wrap up this episode. Thank you for joining us. For show notes and links to all of the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice, and please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We would like to thank Nick English, who designed our logo, and Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. You can reach us by emailing feedback at ProtagonistPodcast.com. We're also on Twitter. You can follow at ProtagonistPod or at Jay Dorowski. And our producer, Andrew, is at this minute, and our Facebook fan page is Facebook.com slash ProtagonistPodcast. Thank you again for listening, and we'll be back again next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. Which should be my uh, introduction this time. How should I say hello? (laughs) I know. Hello.